Orphan of Zhao is a play from the Chinese Yuan Dynasty in the 13th century, generally attributed to the dramatist Ji Junxiang. The story delineates the distant past of Duke Ling's court in the state of Jin, roughly from 620 to 607 BCE. Zhao Dun is a high official at Duke Ling's court. His political archrival, General Tuangu, wins the trust of the duke, who condones the generals eliminating the entire House of Zhao, which numbered over 300 people. Because Zhao Dun's daughter-in-law, Princess Zhuangji, is Duke's sister and is pregnant, she is thus spared. After she gives birth to a son, General Tuangu tries to kill the baby, but Cheng Ying, a family friend and physician, smuggles the newborn out. Finding his target missing and the witnesses dead, Tuangu orders all newborn babies killed. To save the orphan, the physician Cheng Ying plots to give his own newborn son to General Tuangu, who immediately kills the baby. After that, the general takes Cheng Ying and his wife as his protege and adopts their son as his own, who is now we know the orphan of the eliminated Zhao clan. Twenty years later, the orphan, now an adult, learns from Cheng Ying the truth about his own family. After some planning, the orphan seizes General Tuangu and puts him to a painful slow death. The story has a happy ending as the orphan inherits all the titles and positions of his father and grandfather. The play is classified in the zaiju genre of Chinese drama and revolves around the central theme of revenge and was the earliest Chinese play to be known and even translated in Europe. Thank you for tuning in to the Global Novel. I'm Claire Hennessy. With me today is Dr. Patricia Sieber, Associate Professor of Chinese Literature at Ohio State University. Professor Sieber is the author of the book Theaters of Desire: Authors, Readers, and Reproduction of Early Chinese Song Drama from 1300 to 2000. She's also the lead editor of another book called How to Read Chinese Drama, a guided anthology, among other scholarly publications. Internationally, she has been involved with intercultural projects of the Royal Shakespeare Company and the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Welcome, Pat. Thanks, Claire. Glad to be here. Well, recently, the Orphan of Zhao has become more well known on the global stage. We're talking about 2010 when it was adapted into a film called Sacrifice by the acclaimed Chinese film director Chen Kaige. It soon got released in the Western Hemisphere after that, subtitled in English, of course, and sparked immediate controversy over its moral message. And elsewhere, in 2012, it was staged as the first classical Chinese play by the Royal Shakespeare Company in Britain. And in 2015, South Korea adapted the play into a modern Korean spoken drama. All these commercial successes have truly made the play a global icon. What do you think are the possible reasons that made the play so popular on the global stage? Right. So I think when we look、uh, at drama, we have to think about what makes drama special、uh, as a literary form. And here, I think the notion of dramatic conflict is useful, and this can take many different forms. But I think in traditional Chinese plays, they thrive on the idea that each person is trying to live up. To certain ethical obligations, but these ethical obligations are often in conflict with one another. So, what about the orphan in this regard? Right. So, the orphan has a dramatic conflict that involves three overlapping circles of people. So, one is this question of what do you owe to your biological offspring, or what do you owe to your birth? Parents and your extended family. In other words, 
the people who are you know sort of part of your uh, ancestral lineage um, and whom you um, will pay homage uh, to. So, so that's one circle. And then the other circle are the social parents. So in other words, this might not be necessarily the biological or birth parents, but rather the people who raise you. Um, and so that's another group of people. Um, and then um, the third circle is what about the people who are part of the government um, or the sort of political service in the broadest sense? Um, and now orphan um, sort of uh pulls these three circles um, of concern uh, into this gripping story that is, you know, sort of part historical drama. And it's loosely, very loosely, and we'll talk more about that based on actual figures. It's partly a thriller. Uh, can the orphan be saved? Um, so, you know, a lot of people have to do uh, a lot of different things in order for that to happen. So this question, can it be done, hovers over this play. Then it's part who done it. Um, so as Claire mentioned, there is this massacre. Uh, but because of the scale of this massacre, it's sort of something that is hard to be plausible or maybe believable. Uh, and so can this orphan figure out uh, that, yes, this really happened. And if the orphan figures that out, oh, what, what, what is he possibly going to do? And then, you know, part of it is revenge story. How do you cope with such a gruesome family legacy? Um, so by pulling all of these threads together, it makes for, you know, both a, a gripping story, but also one that is very open to different kinds of interpretations, depending on, you know, who picks it up and develops it into um, a play or a film or, you know, TV drama and so forth. Right, right. Well, the play is not entirely Ji Junxiang's own invention, is that right? Right. The play, like many other plays of the 13th and 14th century, had roots in the historiographical tradition. So in China, we have different forms of writing. And from the earliest moment uh, where we have writing, uh, history occupies a, a very important uh, place. And um, this story uh, was picked up in all of the major early historical sources. Uh, but even, uh, one might say, even in that early environment, and here we're talking about the BCE um, era, we find that the story evolves. Um, and for the purposes of um, Qi Junxiang, probably the most important rendition uh, was the one by uh, Sima Qian, who is sort of, I think, universally considered to be the greatest of the early uh, historians. Um, but having said that, we also have to be cognizant that Xi Junxiang took extreme liberties uh, with this historiographical tradition. And um, so we, we have to be very aware that much of what we find in the play is 
uh, Xi Jinxiang's invention. And partly these inventions are, I think, driven uh, by the need uh, of the form that he was working in, that is uh, Yuan Zaju. Could you briefly tell us what this genre is about and what The Orphan of Zhao was roughly like in its Zaju form? So Zaju, like all traditional uh, Chinese theater, is musical theater. So in other words, you have songs and you have spoken dialogue and they alternate uh, between one another. But it's really the songs that are the heart of the play. So in some ways, though, um, we can say that, yes, Zaju taps into the long tradition of poetic writing in China. Again, much like the historiographic tradition, um, the poetic tradition in China is very old. So it builds on that tradition, but there are also some important innovations. One innovation is that traditional poetry was typically chanted and not necessarily sung. So, I mean, chanting is also a very nice sort of, you know, rhythmic way of delivering um, poetic um, ideas and rhythm and meaning. Uh, but uh, when you sing something, there is the music that also underwrites the emotional texture and um, impact uh, of what is being said uh, or articulated via the voice. So this, this musical element is very important. Then the second innovation has to do with lengths. So in other words, your most admired lyrics prior to the Yuan dynasty tended to be short poems, um, maybe four lines, maybe eight lines, something in that order uh, of magnitude. So in Zaju, on the other hand, you have a narrative. And Zaju is very indebted to a form of ballad singing, uh, so-called Zhugong Yao. And so Zhugong Yao is sort of the form that pioneered this combination of singing with narrative. And then in comes Zaju um, tapping into this musical and narrative structure uh, to build um, a plot. The third innovation is that the poetic tradition had typically favored the voice of the elite. By elite, I mean males who were in government service in some capacity uh, or other. Um, and so much of the lyrical tradition is devoted to sort of the meaning of what does it mean to be sort of an upright person who has both um, you know, familial obligations and um, public obligations. So by contrast, uh, Zaju is what we might call a popular genre. So in other words, many of the people who are at the heart of these plays are what we would call commoners, people who have no aristocratic background, who have you know no family pedigrees, sort of in some ways the, the ordinary people or the nobodies of history. 
So in other words, when you look at Saju as a genre, um, you find that there is a veritable social panorama um, of people from all walks of life who are placed, in some cases, at the center uh, of the narrative. And there is a famous Yuan Dynasty critic who actually points out that this uh, capacity for encompassing so many different kinds of people is one of the central features of this form. So people at the time already recognized that you know this was a innovative aspect. And the fourth innovation is that we have somebody who is cast in the role of the main singer. And here things get a little tricky. Sometimes this main singer plays the same character for the entirety of the play. But in about a third of the extant Yuan Zaju corpus, which encompasses around 160 plays, the main singer performs multiple characters. And this is the case in The Orphan. So we have the, the main actor is performing a general in um, Act 1 and then a retired Taoist slash counselor in former counselor in Act 2 and 3 and then um, a the orphan, the eponymous orphan of the title uh, in, in Act 4 or, or um, in 4 and 5, depending on the version of the play about which we will say more. So this, this is, I think, a very interesting um, aspect of this genre because it makes great demands on the acting professionals because now the same actor has to perform what are often very different kinds of people. And so you have this military man in the you know, Hanju in the first act. Then you have this more sort of civil character um, you know, older person in Act 2 and 3. And then you have the orphan, this impetuous young man um, you know, who is also more on the military side um, of things. So, so this makes you know, it imperative that this person who performs these, this play has broad set of acting skills to render these figures uh, plausibly. But in terms of storytelling... What this does is that we get the story told from different points of view. So in other words, each of these figures now has one act or two acts to themselves. And so in some ways, you could say it sort of acts to create a kind of history in 3D format, a stereoscopic view uh, of what you know, previously were just narratives. And then here, um, this is now enlivened by sort of these the selective uptake of certain central conflicts through the lens of these individual characters. So in other words, even though these plays are very short, that is four acts, sometimes with a brief prologue, interlude, or an envoy uh, at the end, you can pack a, a lot of content into these brief plays. And so having this sense of history in 3D, I think, would remain one of the great attractions of traditional Chinese theater. 
Well, many critics claim the most morally challenging episode to be Act Two, when our protagonist Chen Ying sacrifices his own son to guarantee the survival of his lord's son. So, what kind of loyalty to another family deserves such a huge personal cost to one's own family, right? And how was this moral dilemma dramatized and highlighted through its later adaptations? Right. So here, I would say this this is the most disturbing element for modern audiences, and I think some. I think this perhaps you know on on the one hand. Uh, it bespeaks our own moment, where you know, our immediate family is perhaps you know the sort of most important uh, social environment, right? And of course, the state has also something to say about what we can and cannot do with our children, and harming them in any way, um, you know, is uh, is something, right? <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, that you know is is really beyond the pale of um, the legal system, and it's beyond the pale of um, what um, you know modern parents could potentially um, imagine. So, typically, modern adaptations mm, vary this part of the plot. So, for example, you mentioned Chung Haiger's 2010 film, and there Chung In's son dies, but it is an accident of bad timing. So in other words, um, he, you know, leads, um, I mean, he shows up too soon, um, thinking that his child would have already uh, been um, hidden by the point, by the time uh, that um, he um, and Duangu arrive uh, there. So in other words, it becomes, um, yeah, an accident rather than uh, deliberate uh, sacrifice. But here I want to say, Chances are, this was also a very disturbing element in the UN version. So, in other words, because Qi Junxiang introduces this, right, as a new element into this story, we sort of have to ask ourselves why. Um, because if we look at it through the lens of, you know, sort of your stereotypical Confucian thinking, um, then this is also something that is complete anathema. I mean, in other words, you have, don't have to fast forward to the 20th century to think that sacrificing your own child is, is a bad idea. Because in Confucian thinking, in fact, Mencius, none other than Mencius, had said, you know, one of the great unfilial acts is not to have a child. You know, so in other words, you cut off the ancestral line. And so Chengin, by choosing this course of action, chooses not to have an ancestral line. So, and this is not just a personal choice, right? It's also a choice for all his previous ancestor who will now also be left orphaned, as it were. But then, okay, so why, why would a playwright introduce such a twist into the plot? Um, so here, I think... I would suggest there are two things happening. One is if you look at the corpus of early drama, that is drama from you know 13th, 14th, 15th century, and um, not just Saju, but also Nanxi and, and Chuanqi, often these plays revolve around this question of how hard it is to be filial. How hard it is to be a good son 
or, or how hard it is to be a good father, that this ideal of you know, sort of filial love is very much embattled um, because the circumstances are always um, seem to be you know, there to defeat you despite your best uh, intentions. So here I would say um, this the fact that we, we see this kind of narrative um, twist, or you might say this particular kind of dramatic conflict between obligations to you know, um, the states, but also Chongin is one of the retainers of the Zhao family, right? and um, quite likely he's also thinking about his posthumous reception. In other words, was I on the right side of history or was I on the wrong side of history? So all of that, you know, as he has to sort of weigh against okay, it's my child and, you know, it's also my wife's child, right? So is that now you know, sort of a, a selfish decision to protect my child? Or, you know, is it what historiography later on will laud um, as, you know, the sort of the morally upright decision? So in terms of the genre of pitting these different virtues, if you will, against one another, it really helps enhance this dramatic conflict. Now, there may be a second reason for introducing this kind of narrative um, detail, if you will. And that is, as noted, Sima Qian had already shifted the narrative from the aristocracy to the commoners, that is, Han Jue, Cheng Yin, so in other words, the sort of ordi more ordinary people rather than the people at you know, the um, elevated ranks uh, of society. Now, when Chung In offers his child, one thing we can, if we read this through the lens maybe of the discourse uh, at the time, is that here we have an ordinary person willing to make a certain kind of sacrifice that takes great moral courage, that is sac sacrificing his son's life for a moral cause. And oftentimes, these kinds of decisions were thought to be the prerogative of elite status. So in other words, only you know, people who had a certain measure of social distinction were able to make hard decisions like these. But here, um, yeah, so commoners typically you know, would be maybe portrayed as being selfish, greedy, small-minded. They would never do anything so grand. But here we have now a commoner who does something mind-bogglingly sacrificial uh, for a cause. Right? He, he personally does not stand to benefit from this. Um, so, so I think we have to read this as a cause rather than, you know, sort of his, his own benefit. So in some sense, then, what may seem to us as a very barbaric and unimaginable act, if we read this gesture at the level of the social symbolism in the context of that time, it might actually be a kind of, quote unquote, step forward 
That is to say, commoners are also capable uh, of great you know, moral courage. I hope you have so far enjoyed listening to Professor Patricia Sieber's discussion on how the classical narrative form called Zaju effectively enacts the moral dilemma of our protagonist Chen Ying, who sacrifices his own son in order to save his lord's son in the famous Chinese Yuan play, The Orphan of Zhao. If you're interested in listening to the rest of the episode in which Professor Sieber will discuss how the theme of familial revenge is placed in the context of Confucian morality and social hierarchical structures, as well as the afterlife and the cross-cultural adaptations of the play into the 21st century, you can subscribe at theglobalnovel.com slash subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.